history and the one who will bring history to its climax in uh, judgment and in salvation. So that's the two halves of the sermon. First of all then, the Lord is the powerful judge. The Lord is the powerful judge. He rebukes his people for not trusting him in this part of Isaiah, for not trusting him to be in control of their situation. At at this time, many, many hundreds of years ago, um, the people that Isaiah is talking to were especially frightened of a great empire, a military empire, the Assyrian Empire. That was their big fear. You'll see at the end of this section, you know, the chapter 36 begins the story about Sennacherib threatening Jerusalem. That's the kind of threat, this great empire coming right to their doorstep, threatening them, threatening their families, threatening their children, threatening their their farms, their lives, their everything. And God is challenging them by the fact that they're not trusting him with their fear. They're not coming to him in their fear, but they're rather becoming faithless, full of doubt, full of fear that turns away from God. And God challenges them for the foolishness of not trusting him, and rebukes him for the godlessness of not trusting him. He says, I'm the judge. I will be able to bring down Assyria who threatens you, but actually if you walk away from me in your fear, and if you walk away from my love and my grace and my salvation, then you're vulnerable as well. The Lord will judge Jerusalem for her faithlessness. Look at chapter 32, verse 9, as an example of that. Here, addressing the women in Jerusalem, you women who are so complacent, Rise up and listen to me, you daughters who feel secure. Hear what I have to say. In a little more than a year, you who feel secure will tremble. The grape harvest will fail. The harvest of fruit will not come. Tremble, you complacent women. Shudder, you daughters who feel secure. Threatening there. Or chapter 33, uh, verse 7. 33, verse 7. Look, there brave men cry aloud in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways are deserted. No travellers are on the roads. The treaty is broken. Its witnesses are despised. No one is respected. The land mourns and wastes away. Lebanon is ashamed and withers. Sharon is like Arabah and Bashan and Carmel drop their leaves. Now will I arise, says the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now I'll be lifted up. You conceive chaff, you give birth to straw, your breath is fire that consumes you. The peoples will be burned as if to lime, to cut, like cut thorn bushes they'll be set ablaze. You who are far away, hear what I, what I have done. You who are near, acknowledge my power. The sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? God warns people that if they turn away from him, then they stand alone in their guiltiness. They stand exposed before God's justice. And so it's a foolish thing in the middle of fear and worry to turn away from God, who's the only one who saves, to turn away from the God who, without his salvation, is the judge. It's foolish to reject the Lord because it doesn't work. It's foolish to reject the Lord because we then put our hope in false things, fragile things, little securities that fail us, that leave us vulnerable, and leave us guilty before God. In Isaiah's day, they were tempted to turn away from trusting in God as the one who would look after them, and they would look for local political alliances and and horses and princes and strategies and sometimes even superstitions, religious superstitions as the things that would keep them safe rather than trusting God. It might be different things for you. It might be some of those things. Here's a bit from a... um, a famous um, 
author, maybe you've uh, heard of David Foster Wallace. He was a, a sports writer, a mathematician, um, uh, and a novelist. Uh, wrote the novel Infinite Jest, one of those great American novel-type books. And here's what he says in a speech that captures the different kinds of false hopes and false gods we can trust in in our day and age. David Foster Wallace says, because here's something that's weird but true, he says. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping up the truth in our daily consciousness. There's all sorts of things you can worship. And so many of them end up cursing us in the end, is what he's saying. You worship false gods, little gods, false hopes. They end up eating you alive. And so also the Lord is saying to these people, so many hundreds of years ago, if you put your hope in the wrong things, in the end, not only won't it work, but you'll stand exposed before the judgment of God. He's the judge, you see. He's the one who can judge Assyria and remove all the threats you, you worry about, but he's also the one who can judge you. If you ignore God, he won't ignore you. If you ignore God, he won't ignore you. All of us will come face to face to God. And that's true also for the religious churchgoer, the person who is good on the outside and does all the right things on the outside. But if they ignore God in their heart, in their real selves, never truly repenting and trusting him themselves, then you go through all the motions, look good on the outside, but on the final day when you're face to face with God, then you'll be seen for who you are if you haven't ever really put your trust in him. So God warns his people in their fear and their worry to not turn away from him, but he also reminds them, yes, he is the judge of all the nations. <laughs> so how much more are you better off sticking with him? He is the one sure, safe place to be. Again, in chapter 33, verse 1, Woe to you, O destroyer, speaking to Assyria. Woe, uh, you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, O traitor, you who have not been uh, betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. And when you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. Verse 3, at the thunder of your voice, Lord, the peoples flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. You plunder, o na your plunder, O nations, is harvested as by young locusts, like a swarm of locusts, men pounce on it. God will bring down all these arrogant empires and nations who are so boastful and so proud. Verse 17 of chapter 33. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. In your thoughts, you will ponder the former terror. Where is that chief officer? 
Where is the one who took the revenue? Where is the officer in charge of the towers? You'll see those arrogant people no more. Those people of an obscure speech with their strange, incomprehensible tongue. So all those people who threaten you from afar, that got you so worried about invading you, in the end, God will bring them low too, he is saying. God will put all the wrongs in the world right eventually. He's the judge of the whole world. He's greater than any empire or emperor or military or nuclear arsenal. He'll call arrogant oppressors and the genocides and the dictators and the warlords to account. The small-minded, cruel bullies, the abusers, the hateful preachers, the people smugglers, the liars, the scammers. God will bring, bring people the unjust, the evil, to account. God will right every wrong. God will right every wrong on the global scale, in the final judgment, right through to the personal scale, even down to us and our wrongs. In this section, the language gets spoken of of a sacrifice that will satisfy God's anger. And it is the, the judgment of God finally righting every wrong that the judgment of God fixes a world of evil. God can bring final justice. And so the language of sacrifice is used in chapter 34. It's shocking language. We'll talk about what it means in just a moment. Chapter 34, come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that's in it, the world and all who come out of it. The Lord is angry with all the nations. His wrath is upon all their armies. He'll totally destroy them. He'll give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will send up a stench. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom, the people I've totally destroyed. The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. It's covered with fat. The blood of lambs and goats, fat from the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah and a great slaughter in Edom. And the wild oxen will fall with them, the bull calves and the great bulls. Their land will be drenched with blood and the dust will be soaked with fat. It's shocking, vivid imagery, bloody imagery. It's not being used to conjure concepts of uh, senseless violence and torture as if God is somehow in a blind, uh, drunken, blood-drunk rage, swinging a, his broadsword around. But rather, it's, it's, it's conjuring both at the sense of absolute totality, completeness, finality, like what a final defeat in a war is, with also this language of sacrifice. It's conjuring up their, their ceremonial system of, of animal sacrifice as a reminder of a need to deal with the anger of God. And it's saying that one way in which God's anger is finally satisfied is when his justice and judgment is finally done. Totally, completely, fully, evil being toppled once for all, put down once for all, like when an evil empire is brought low, decisively in a military victory. Like when an animal sacrifice is offered up in a temple ceremony, and God's anger is appeased by the sacrifices. There's two ways in which justice is restored and God's wrath subsides. 
One is in his judgment, his final judgment, as we see here. The other, which the temple sacrifices prefigure and the death of Jesus Christ fulfills, is that in the cross of Jesus, Romans chapter 3, Lux talked about the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3 says that in the cross of Jesus we have uh, an appeasement for sin, a, a, a propitiation for the anger of God, an atonement for the anger of God that enables God to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That God brings his judgment on himself in his son on the cross so that his justice is done but humans are pardoned, are made just, even though we're not. Two places where the anger of God is dealt with, either in his personal judgment on the nations, on us, or in himself, in his son on the cross. In some ways, chapter 34 and 35 are, are like a, a, a two presentations, two ways. <laughs> How, how, will, um, how will you approach God? Will it be exposed before his judgment or will it be forgiven and walking on the way of holiness? We'll get to chapter 35 in a second. But note for, uh, before we move on what we should say before a shocking warning like this. What response? We'll notice throughout the, these sections, whole section, um, the call to listen keeps coming up throughout this section. Chapter 32, verse 9, you women who are so complacent, rise up and listen. 33, verse 13, you who are far away, hear what I have done. You who are near, acknowledge my power. 34, verse 1, come near you nations, listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear. Pay attention. Even this shocking language, this poetry that's so vivid, so bloody, so repulsive, is attention-grabbing. Listen. Be warned, in other words. Be careful. This is so important, Isaiah is saying. It's not something to ignore. It's not something to tune out on. This is very, very important. For a day will come. Listen, don't be complacent. Prepare for the day when you die. Prepare for the day when you meet God. Listen. And when you hear, repent. Turn. So 30 verse 19. 30 verse 19. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you'll weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. 31 verse 6. Return to him, you who have so greatly revolted against, O Israelites. For in that day, every one of you will reject the idols of silver and gold your sinful hands have made. Well, 33 verse 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in times of distress. For the Lord is powerful to judge. It's fearful. But it's also powerful to save, and it's wonderful. 
all through Isaiah, every bit that we've looked at this semester and more besides, all through it we have hope and promise, light and life, the good things in store. Isaiah preaches the gospel before it's come in Jesus Christ, looks ahead to the coming of Christ. And in this section, he does something particularly interesting. He picks up the, the language of the Moses story, of the Exodus, and uses that same kind of language, language and imagery to talk about the salvation that's going to come into the future. He kind of plug, gets his, he recharges the batteries, freshens them up again, uh, and, and reuses them. <laughs> he picks up this language, he retools it. Um, he gets that song and does the cover version, however you like to think about it, and, and says, hey, you know that whole Exodus thing? That's a pattern of what's going to come. The Exodus was like the defining story, the kind of national mythology. The, I mean, like, uh, white Australia has the national mythology of the English sending our young boys off to get slaughtered in Turkey. And that's kind of the defining mythology, Gallipoli and Anzac Day. Let's celebrate the way the English just kind of threw us at guns and killed us all. And that's Australia's mythology. <laughs> so we have Anzac, white Australia has Anzac Day as a mythology of being angry at the British and still brave and heroic. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Israel's mythology was um, their history, their defining story was how God rescued them out of Egypt, out of slavery. God acted to rescue and to bring them to safety, to freedom, to full life with God. And the songs of Israel, the Psalms, sing that story again and again. Great, wondrous, mighty deeds of the Lord. The Ten Commandments and the law keep looking back to it all the time as motivation and a framework for how and why to live the way they live. Moses, the great prophet of the Old Testament, speaks about it. The teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the Acts and the letters of the New Testament look back to the Exodus as this really important event. They recharge it, they, they cover version it to use it as a story of the new salvation, the new rescue, the new exodus, the new beginning. It's far better. So chapter 30, verse 19. Chapter 30 and verse 19. O people of Zion, you who live in Jerusalem, you weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you'll see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Then you'll de uh, defile your idols overlaying with silver and your images covered with gold. You throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, away with you. He will also send you rain for the seed that you sow in the ground and the food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will graze in broad meadows. The oxen, the donkeys, and the work, the soil will eat fodder and mash spread out with a fork and a shovel. In that day of great slaughter, when the towers fall, streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill. You'll be rescued and you'll be led through a, a troubling place to a full and fruitful blessing land where the waters flow, all evoking these images from the Exodus stories. Or the Passover kind of idea is there in chapter 31, verse 4. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to me, as the lion growls, a great lion over his prey, and though a whole band of shepherds is caught, together called against him, he's not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamour. So the Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion on its heights. Like the birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He'll shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it. He will rescue it. 
just as the Lord passed over the Israelites during the, uh, the, the angel of death coming upon the sons of Egypt. Chapter 32, verse 1, A king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. Each man will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert. Again, this exodus imagery. And the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then the eyes of those will, will no longer be closed and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the rash will know and understand and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel will be highly respected. For the fool speaks folly, his mind is busy with evil, he practices ungodliness and speaks error concerning the Lord. The hungry he leaves empty, and from the first thirsty he withholds water. The scoundrel's methods are wicked, he wakes up, makes up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. But the noble man makes noble plans, and by his noble deeds he stands. He will rescue them through the desert again, bring water in the desert, and establish his people Honour them in their righteousness and peace. A promise of a new creation even. Even in human hearts itself. And so 32 verse 15. The spirit will be poured out on us from on high. And the deserts will become a fertile field. And the fertile field will seem like a forest. And justice will dwell in the desert. And righteousness will live in the fertile field. And the fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Salvation is a new exodus, a new redemption, a new leading through a wilderness, a new arrival in a promised land of peace and fullness and life and freedom. Out of slavery to the nations, to sin, to death, to hard hearts, they'll be redeemed into a new life of spiritual vitality, forgiveness, life and joy secure just as Isaiah picks up all these themes uh, the gospels pick up these themes as they tell about Jesus Jesus comes announced by a voice in a wilderness prepare the way for the salvation of the Lord he's announced as one who gives the Holy Spirit pour out the spirit like we just read he declares himself to be one on whom the Spirit has come to be, to give freedom to the prisoners and sight to the blind. Yeah? He's one who gives new life and new words like a prophet like Moses. He's the one who even has a, a meeting with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration to discuss his departure, or you could translate it, his exodus about to take place in Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9. And he's the one who fulfills all that the law of Moses, the prophets and the writings spoke about in his death and his resurrection, in the giving of his spirit and the preaching of the gospel. What Isaiah promised has now come in Jesus Christ. He is the king of righteousness that the start of chapter 32 speaks of. He is the one who brings this new exodus, new life, the Holy Spirit now and future resurrection and new creation upon his return so what well same as with the judgment stuff isn't it listen hear listen carefully pay attention this is really important and turn back to God he's powerful to judge so listen turn back to God he's powerful to save so listen Turn back to God. God is good. 
God is calling, God is inviting. Turning to God and trusting in God, becoming a Christian is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's the best thing. It's true freedom. It's forgiveness. It's a new life. It's peace with God. It's hope for the future. It's restoration to how we were created to be. It's a good thing. Live his ways. Walk in his paths. Walk on the way. In fact, you know, that was what Christianity got called before it was called Christianity. They called it the way. And that's how it's spoken of in chapter 35 here. And we'll finish with this. An invitation to walk on the way. Again, this is an Exodus theme. And it captures the ministry of Jesus. It captures the salvation to come. It describes the way that we walk on now as we follow the Lord Jesus. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom, chapter 35. Like the crocus, it'll burst into bloom. It'll rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They'll see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He'll come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He'll come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground, bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay. Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean won't journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will there be any ferocious beast. Get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will be returned. Those who have been brought back, you see. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. It's awesome, isn't it? I mean, it's describing the final return of Jesus and the new creation in all its fullness and glory. But isn't this just almost word for word describing the ministry of Jesus? Didn't Jesus even send back John the Baptist's doubting disciples to John in prison and say, hey, go and tell John what you see. The lame leap like a deer. The blind see. The deaf hear. This stuff, the way that you were preparing the way for is here. And while we don't have a guarantee that we'll have a jackal-free life, <laughs> um, or, or a blindness or a deafness free life this language is used in the New Testament to describe the spiritual new life all believers do enjoy now the spiritual new life of strong knees and new life and a clear way as we walk with the Lord towards that great final destination rejoice keep walking and as you walk, talk or sing about this great salvation to any who hear. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our Lord God, you are great and glorious. And it's fearful to think of the creator of all things the powerful judge of all nations. 
but it's wonderful to know that you, the mighty creator, the just judge, is the merciful saviour. And you came to save us in your son. To offer yourself in your son as a sacrifice for our sins. To ransom us, to redeem us, to forgive us. So by your spirit, give us the ability to hear, to turn, to trust, to walk in your way. It's the good way. It's where freedom and life is really found. And we delight in you. In Jesus' name we pray by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Over to you, Sarah. Okay, if the kingdom of heaven is at hand, in fact, is already here, and Jesus went around healing the sick, etc., so we know that in God's kingdom people are healed, why do we as Christians who carry God's kingdom not see immediate healing every time we pray for it? Massive question. Yeah, wants to kick us yeah, I'll, I'll do that one just quickly because uh, I just touched on it in the sermon. Really, yeah, uh, it's it, it's important to see that Jesus didn't just um, he, he manifested what the kingdom would be like and showed what it would finally be like, um, but didn't therefore show what it would always be like in this lifetime. And so, as you as you read the New Testament, um, we we see the full picture of everything that that God has 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 in mind for us but then we are told that that jesus is going to come back he's not back yet and so although the kingdom has begun it's dawned it hasn't arrived in its fullness and so we're in this overlap between now and not yet so we still struggle with sin we still have political oppressions and frustrations economic frustrations um, and health frustrations and mental health frustrations all those things so they still exist now we can pray god does answer prayer but doesn't always answer prayer with a yes now sometimes the answer is not yet um, and sometimes that not yet is not until my son returns. Yeah. I'd really like to hear if Damaris has anything to say. Yeah. She's studying. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so as a medical student, I'm in the hospital most days of the week, and so I see a lot of people who are really unwell um, of all ages, and I think it's a lot harder to see in young people than it is in older people, um, but it's... It's really hard either way. Um, I think it depends what you think the goal of life is, whether you see that there's purpose to it. Um, the goal that I often default to is to be happy and to be really secure and to be really comfortable. But when you see the growth um, and the maturity that people get from a lot of the really hard illnesses that they have, that achieves so much. Um, and so I'm not, I don't think that's the only reason that we still have all of that in the world. But I think that there's a lot of really good growth that can come out of it. Um, and I think it's easy for me as a Christian not to value growing and persevering as much because it's not really comfortable. Um, but that's something I've been challenged to in the past little bit to see everything in life as God perfecting me and moulding me um, and he's doing the same for, for other people as well. So that's what I'm thinking at the moment. I'm, just, I'm sure that I'll, I'll keep thinking about it because it's something that um, I'll see lifelong and, and probably grow in my, my opinion And I think for those of us who have prayed for people, for healing, um, if we look to, to Jesus, 
and his healing and their, the lives of people changed, not in just their, their physical body, but they were embraced back into community. They were able to um, be employed and work and make money and have dignity. And I think we can learn from that in our Christian communities and by extending community to people who are suffering, to people who are unwell, people with chronic illnesses, um, loving them well, giving them dignity, and um, yeah, we can still provide the, the outcomes that, the other outcomes that a healing would give by embracing them into God's kingdom in different ways. Um, I just add that it's sometimes helpful to recognize that um, this reality was also in the New Testament as well. It's not just, oh, we've lost our biblical nature now. Uh, and the example I'd give is Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he's talking about the thorn that he's been given and how he asks God three times or something to remove it. And God's like, my grace is sufficient for you. And so um, the idea that not everything gets healed in this lifetime isn't just something that oh, we've come up with because we don't have a lack of faith. <laughs> um, I think faith is a really important thing and is really powerful, um, but it can be quite encouraging to recognise that that is still um, part of this world that we live in now. Um, yep, God works with the stuff that we live yeah. with. Yeah, great. Thanks, guys. Next question. Why did God try to kill Moses? Go, Micah. <laughs> was yours the one, were you saying, before, is this yours one's Micah? Yes. Was your one actually, why does it say he tried to? Why did God try? Why did he do it? <laughs> <laughs> I had an answer for that one, not this one. <laughs> um, the, 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 whenever the Bible talks about God, it uses what's called an anthropomorphism, which is describing something that's not a human as if it's a human. Um, so God's right arm rescues. Uh, doesn't mean that God actually has a right arm, but it means, God, you, you know, if you're right-handed, you do stuff. He's, he did things mightily, yeah. And so in the same way, when it says things like God sought to or tried to, or it, there's different translations for that particular verb, it's capturing the idea of God was intent on doing something, but before he did it... Um, and then maybe Leia can tell you what, what happened next. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so, so it's, it's not so much saying God tried, but he couldn't, darn it, but it's God was going to. So it's kind of an anthropomorphic way of saying God was about to do something, but then it was, he was stopped from doing it. Do you want to give the answer to the why he did in that context, try to kill Moses? You said you had an answer to that one? Do you want to know the answer to that? <laughs> well, my answer? Oh, okay, so what I was going to say is that the context of this is that um, Moses has a child, and is this even relevant anymore? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I was just thinking about all your preparation work. That's all. All my preparation. <laughs> it's to do with circumcision and the fact that Moses and his child weren't un hadn't followed the law of circumcision, and so God was like, "What are you doing?" And then his wife was like, "Quick!" And so God didn't kill him. There you go. Love it. Um, because it was a um, symbol of the covenant, the promise between God and his people. Great. 
Next question. What's the difference between doubting and unbelief in God? For example, Hebrews 3 talks about people being unable to enter God's rest because of their unbelief. How do I know that I'm going to be able to enter God's rest? I'll start with some thoughts and then pass it back and hear what other people think. Um, if doubting was the same as unbelief, then I'd be in a lot of trouble, and I think mm. most Christians would be, because um, most people that I've spoken to have had periods of their life, if not most of their life, where they have doubts. Um, and I guess the way that I would define it is unbelief would be a continual hardness of your heart towards God, continually rejecting him and everything about him. Um, whereas doubting um, is knowing a lot about God and having genuine questions about him, his ways and the world around us. Um, and so if your genuine questions lead you to a point where you reject God, then I would say that's unbelief. And but if you're if you're asking questions and you're wrestling through things and you're and you're saying God give me faith in my doubt, um, then I think that's a very different thing. I love the verse you read at the start, uh, right? Yeah, what's, yeah. what's the line? Um, I believe. Help me, my unbelief. Yeah. That's, that's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, so pray great. that. If you're not sure, then that would be a good way to so pray. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that captures that what Damaris was describing. Yeah. Um, maybe, so Hebrews 3 verse 12 says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So I think what Damaris was saying in that unbelief is a turning away from God, um, whereas doubting is more, I think you could substitute questioning in there, um, a lack of understanding, which doesn't always lead to unbelief and actually I would say that if you're a Christian and you've never questioned you've never asked questions about your faith um, you should because yeah. if you don't do that then how do you know like how have you tested it for yourself how have you tested your understanding and know that what you say that you believe in is true because I think that's where belief changes from just oh I guess there's this thing that I've been told and I'll just kind of follow the trend um, especially if we've grown yeah, up. In fact ironically not doubting can lead to unbelief more than doubting can in the sense that eventually you go I'm sick of keeping up this charade I've had all these doubts I've never expressed them I've never entertained them and they build up build up build up and then I go drop drop it and too walk much all at once drop it and walk away yeah whereas the person who is in a context where they're allowed to like tonight ask questions and doubt and share their doubts and be real about their faith that may actually be a better path to ongoing faith. Yeah, whereas holding all your doubts in and pushing them down and not talking about them yeah. can actually be a, just a long-term recipe for unbelief in the end. Yeah, so a good call, I reckon. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Next question. What are helpful things to do if I'm a Christian struggling with doubt? Um... Be in community, ask those questions within community and you'll find that you're not alone 
in those questions and that people who have gone before you asking the same ones and have wrestled with them exactly like Locke's story. And um, we're told to, um, to be as part of a body, a family that God has given us. And that's one role that the family of God can play in our lives so that we don't feel alone in our questioning. I think also um, find community and companionship in the Psalms. The Psalms give us the language of questioning and doubting. And so you can journey along with psalmists as they begin with their doubts and end with comfort and peace in knowing who God is. Um, I think just also figuring out what God in the Bible actually says about the topic or the thing that you're thinking about is really important and it's important to separate it from what you've heard other people say about what God says. I think often if you've come from a Christian background or you've been, had Christian friends and um, a lot of our doubts and questions can stem from um, other people's interpretations of things. So go back and actually figure out what God says. Um, I think that's helpful to clarifying your own doubts. As a, as a kind of an intellectual mood, kind of Western philosophy and culture uh, over the last few generations has tended to basically build beliefs around picking fringe cases and then picking away from things from there. Well, what about this fringe case? Well, therefore, what about this? Therefore, what about this? Therefore, chuck it all out. And you might notice that those of you who are doing any humanities subjects or did philosophy or religion at school, that especially in a state school sort of situation, you might have been around teachers and others who... Uh, any topic, they immediately pick the outside case and go, what about this, what about this, what about this, what about this, and work their way in. Whereas uh, there's, there's some strength to that, but it's also a, it's a pretty bad way to build a philosophy based on all the exceptions and the fringe cases. And so, in, similarly with doubt, what's the centre? It's the Lord Jesus himself. Yeah, read the Gospels and spend time with Jesus and, and see him and his character, God's character and God's ways. Know what's central and then sort out the fringe cases around a centre rather than fixate on this doubt that may be a fringe doubt or something around, and, and then you're just bogged in there. Because if you fixate that way, suddenly everything might slowly get distorted. Whereas if you get the centre right, you're actually in a good position to figure out how to integrate the stuff around. Does that make sense? Yeah. Great. Um, how much should our understanding of God and the divine come from revelation and how much should come from discovery, experience, philosophy and history. Evangelical Christians seem to ascribe the former, appealing to the Bible, but then depend on the latter for their apologetics. How do we construct a cohesive idea of who God is from this? Who wrote that question? <laughs> <laughs> We need to go and have a lie down after that question, don't we? It's like giving a defence for the, the gospel. Yeah, so answering questions. We use philosophy to answer tricky questions. 
there's a couple of words that when you get around Christian circles in a while get confusing. So there's evangelical and then there's evangelist. An evangelist is someone who tells the gospel. An evangelical is someone who believes the gospel, or at least the kind of Protestant gospel. And Yeah, it gets complicated now, yeah, in America. Um, and similarly, apologetics is like, it's not apologizing, but it's from the apologia in Greek, meaning to defend. Greek or Latin? Latin. I wonder if um, we tend to look at experience for our apologetics because that's something we have in common with people who might not believe in everything that the Bible says or even know what's in the Bible. And so in a lots of, I don't know if anyone else, which is like these YouTube channels where they go off on the street and talk to people about God. Um, but often they'll try and find something in common with that person and then move on to talking about the differences. And so I wonder if you dig deeply into apologetics, if that's kind of just scraping the surface, but that's the bit that we see. Um, and in fact, there's, there's more deeper down. That's just, it's kind of more of a question than an answer. Yeah, you never settle in apologetics, do you? You always move toward the gospel of Jesus. Yeah, introducing people to the person of Jesus. If I had my phone, oh, I do, but now it's too late because I didn't realise I had it. Um, one of the kind of um, doctrinal summaries of Christian teaching that some of your churches might use, the Westminster Confession of Faith, does have a section, it's like the first section in the whole thing. So if you went to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, then it would say something along the lines there of the fact that the Bible is the supreme authority, especially about matters relating to knowing God and serving God. But there's two things I've thought about that, right? It's the supreme authority, not the only, but the supreme. And secondly, as it relates to knowing God and obeying God. So there are other authorities that help us in other ways that just aren't the supreme authority. And there are other authorities that are far more informative when it comes to how to do a Rubik's Cube or how to do drone technology for your masters or you know, how to sort of serve somebody with some kind of nasty cyst or something. Uh, the Bible isn't going to help you with all those things. There are other authorities that might be the first port of call on those things. Um, but the Bible is a supreme authority, especially with regard to knowing God and serving God. And because God is the fundamental creator, that will shape your approach to drone tech and lancing cysts and whatever else as well. Like, it'll shape your worldview with everything else. Um, but it's not that the Bible tells you everything you ever need on any topic all the time. It tells everything you need to know God and be saved, and it shapes the way we think about everything else. And so that would be a starting point of then integrating this other stuff in. Do you know what I mean? So in both in your own beliefs as well as, like Damara said, when you're talking with someone who doesn't share your beliefs, finding points of connection. I think, not just I think, I know that the God that works in my life is the same God who worked all through the Bible, and so it's not like I'm trying to look at two different definitions. Um, he's obviously given us the Bible, and that's really great in helping understand like how he works in our lives, um, but the idea that, they, that the Bible versus your life and your experience and the way that God works in that are two opposing things, I would disagree with. But like Mikey was saying, that, that the word of God, the Bible, is the supreme authority is a very helpful distinction because it means that that's what we 
interpret our lives through, as opposed to being like, oh, well, this thing happened in my life. That means that this part of the Bible must be wrong because that's not my experience. So it's like, well, actually, um, maybe it's time for a perspective change and to look at it the other way around because if the God of the Bible has given the Bible to us as the supreme authority, that is the supreme authority, but he hasn't changed since he wrote the Bible. <laughs> like He's the same God that works in each of us as well. That's a really good point. Um, do we have any more questions from the floor at all? Yes, please. <laughs> How do we love people in the LGBT community? Can I ask a clarifying question? Is that, are you talking specifically about Christians or non-Christians or both in general? Don't treat them any differently. I think it's really easy to turn into an us and them. Um, or especially I think in Christian circles don't just treat them like your friends and the same that you would I guess love being the basis um, just like you would want any other friendship to be that should be um, yeah our first initial response and then um, if we come to differences of opinion on how to live that should be separate to the basis of our friendship and our relationship I was just going to say, just speaking about Christians, so there are Christians who are devout Christians, love God, serve God, have really strong sexual attractions to people of the same sex, but are uh, convinced that that's not God's way for sexuality. But they're wrestling with a culture that tells them that they'll be miserable if they don't live out those sexual desires, and they're wrestling with the... their, their faith in all of that, and then they're in a Christian community that can do things that can help them or hurt them. So one thing that can help them or hurt them is talking about them as if they're never in the room. <laughs> so there might be someone in the room right now that, that's describing you. And if we always talk about you as if you're not here and you're a them out there somewhere, then that makes you feel unseen and unknown. So that cannot help. We cannot help by always talking as if really the end game for full Christian maturity and happiness is getting married and having kids. And so if there's always this underlying thing of, oh, we've got to set up so-and-so and such-and-such with so-and-so, and then, you know, as if there's something broken about them we need to fix um, if they're single. That doesn't help. Um, that doesn't give them a way of actually full, uh, genuine, glorious life. It's a single life, like Jesus' life was, you know, like many people's lives, either gay or straight. Um, and so, so uh, finding ways to talk about godliness and the Christian life that isn't all also about marriage and kids and dating and blah, blah, blah is another um, a really helpful one. Um, and and I th one we're really wrestling with at the moment as Christians is how to talk about questions of identity and experience that don't silence the, the Christian who's having this experience and tell them, oh, you have to say, you're not gay in any way, you're not, those experiences aren't a part of who you are at all, you're just a Christian. That, I'm hearing a lot of Christians who have that experience saying that doesn't quite help me because I am this, this experience is a key part of my life and there are certain degrees to which I connect with and identify with the LGBT community um, as well and their experiences as well. So that's one that there's no simple answers to. You ask different Christians and they'll have different answers to that, including different Christians who you know, have same-sex attraction. I have different answers to that. But at least listening to that and being attentive to the way they talk about them being allowed to talk about their experience rather than me as preacher man deciding here's the, here's the way you have to talk about it. So th there are some things I've heard from 
people who are Christians and are seeking to live um, a faithful Christian life, um, uh, some of the things that we can do to help and honour you, them, um, or discourage them? I think on another side of that is that it's exactly the same for each one of us living in whatever sin that we're living in, um, is as brothers and sisters, we're meant to call each other out on that. Um, this is helpful probably to differentiate between like as, as having a um, homosexual desire and not acting on that, um, which is not sinful, versus acting in a way on such a desire that um, is not in line with God's will. Um, and in that situation, I think it's just like any other sin that you or me <laughs> get caught in, um, is that as brothers and sisters, the way that we interact with each other in a loving way is to be like, hey, that's a sin, that's not godly, let's walk out of that, let's like try with God's help, um, which can be a really hard thing to hear um, and very challenging to do because we don't like <laughs> we don't like confrontation um, but I think that's this is a personal thing like I think quite a lot about how how we should as community be like challenging each other because we don't do it very much um, but in terms of non-Christians as well um, I think the simplest thing is that the biggest thing that they need is Jesus. <laughs> That's with any non-Christian. It doesn't matter what, what sin they're living with unless they have Jesus. And so it essentially doesn't matter. It's just they need Jesus. Great. Um, do we have another question from the floor just before? Yes. Uh, in Mikey's sermon, he read out the verse... My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. How should this promise to Christians uh, inform our theology of housing, uh, renting, investment properties, <laughs> and so on? Good on you. It's a moral issue. I think that's a really... Uh, my, Maybe my generation, that younger, your generation, you get this because you're living in a world that's been sort of bought up and subdivided and franked and back reverse engineered, geared and whatever else and, um, by the boomers. Um, you know, it's a, housing is not just, just an investment issue, just a wisdom issue, just a financial issue. It's a moral issue that, um, that what we do with our wealth, including our property, um, is an obligation. To, to our fellow human beings. It's not just an individual wealth portfolio thing. And sadly, one of the contributors uh, to housing problems in the first world has been Christians who have run seminars that have trained Christians about how to maximise their wealth by buying and flipping and doing up properties and gentrifying neighbourhoods. And it's terrible. Um, and not talking enough about being godly landlords and potentially not raising the rent and potentially... and so on and so forth. So, yeah, we, 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 as far as you're ever able to have property um, and in our communities, we've got to think that all through. How do we be godly in our use of land and property for others? Yeah. And so this is described, this is a picture of heaven, but our vision of the future should shape our action now. And that was like Christine's point about how we can bring social healing even if we can't bring miraculous healing. And here's another version of that, absolutely. So as much as we play a part, we should be thinking, how do we, how do we use any wealth or property we have for others and not just for ourselves. A bit of a rant. 
it's tricky because we're in a society and a capitalist society has a yeah. mind of its own and so that's it's not something we can fix overnight but we can play a small part at least in it how of how Christians are thoughtful in incorporating the supreme authority of how God has revealed himself and his desire for his people to embrace the vocation of imaging God to the world and to setting them apart to be rulers over the world Josh being a ruler over the world that God has given you the areas of influence that God has given you and you purposely imaging God, ruling on his behalf, being a priest among the people that God has put in your lives and representing God to them. Um, so when it comes to all of these things, housing, um, a dignity of people who are um, uh, infirm or ill or... Um, lacking in the same abilities that you and I may have. We all think biblically about all these things that we do as we embrace our vocation to image God. Yeah, Looking forward to that resurrected life and that new creation of what God has set before us. Yeah. Mm. Great. Well, unfortunately, we have run out of time, but thank you so much to our panel. We still have so many questions, so if you still have things on your mind, I encourage you to really, um, yeah, come and chat to anyone about them, talk to them about them with your friends and your family, um, people at church that you trust. If there is anyone here um, who you have heard speak tonight that you'd like to chat to, there's an opportunity to do that over coffee, um, so look into that if you want to. Um, but otherwise, thank you so much to our panel. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your generosity in giving us some of those answers. Um